Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Wait a minute. Is it 1986? It's 1986, right? It's got to be 1986. Maybe 1987. But that was definitely two books back to back where the bad guys were the Goblin Queen and Mojo. And it's got to be 1986, right? This is X, right? I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm sure I'm Jonah. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike the mutant ballerina who died in the Mojoverse. And we don't even have a name yet. I love how, how cocksure you came in there. And speaking of people who are cocksure, I want to welcome back for a second amazing episode of Investigation. Everybody, please welcome back to the show, Arturo. Hey, glad to be back. So last episode, we spent an inordinate amount of time on X-Men number 11. And frankly, Magneto deserves it. We've spent the last few weeks talking about our favorite X-Divas. And we've been examining them from all sides, whether it's the ultimate X-Diva, bar none, number one ever, Storm, who got her own segment, or it was a collective of the X-Divas. There's no way you can talk about the X-Men without hyper-obsessing on the fantastic qualities of their many female warriors. But how could we overlook the handful of great men? And obviously there's more than a handful, but and it, when you're talking about Magneto, it's definitely more than a handful. And so I wanted to ask everybody, with how much the X-Men have been changing, one of the things that's been nonstop has been the aesthetic evolution of the team. And we talked a little bit about Magneto redesigns last episode, but I, I wonder... Who's been your favorite redesign on the whole throughout the process of Hoxpox Doxos? I mean, I love Jean's costume, but it doesn't really feel like a redesign. It kind of feels like an undesign, and she jumped back a look. And that's okay. I really like Scott's look. It's really kind of like Nightwing the Inhumans meet Cyclops, and that's real hot, and I'm all about it. But if I had a favorite redesign... It would be the dual Braddocks. Betsy and Brian finally having these complimenting, beautifully complimentary Captain and Lionheart looks. That's something that I've been like begging for. I mean, I used to beg for Lionheart to be Betsy because I kind of felt like she doesn't need to be anybody's second choice. And I would have rather her had her own power set. But then, you know, I do understand how that's kind of weird and maybe putting her in the new thing would be less effective. So, okay, this is for me the definitive redesign and bonus points go to every fucking look in X-Factor. That's my number two. Every look in yes, X-Factor. My yes. entire number two Everyone. is every look in X-Factor. And number three goes to Rogue in that fantastic jacket. Because what is that jacket? It's fantastic! <laughs> I 100% agree with you about the, the Braddocks. I have loved, loved, loved both of them since we saw their redesign at the beginning of this whole thing. So, yeah, they're they're my favorite. 
I'm going to say Emma Frost is a big, big highlight for me in this era because I love that we now see her pretty much every time she's on panel in a different look. I feel like that's such an interesting thing for the character. I'm glad she's back in, in all white. Jumbo! Jumbo! Uh, mostly. Jumbo Carnation! Oh, uh, no. Jumbo Carnation! Jumbo Carnation! I love that. It, I, and not to jump ahead, but that was my one qualm with X Factor. I would have loved, 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 loved for Jumbo Carnation. Or maybe this will happen eventually. Jumbo Carnation's revealed to be the designer of the outfits, but I absolutely love the X-Factor outfits, and I love Jumbo Carnation. And I love seeing Emma Frost be a true fashion plate and playing with fabrics and textures and just being opulent and gorgeous and mercurial and I just love her. Opulence. You own everything. Opulence. Um, I'm surprised that the name Charles wasn't thrown about because I feel like he's had the biggest redesign, you know. He's walking and has this giant-ass fucking iconic helmet on. But my other answer, because in true Jonah fashion, I can't just have one, is Kate. Ooh. Yes. Yes. Great answer. Ooh, yes. Great answer. She's a woman now. Also, Jonah's right. I don't know how I forgot about that amazing Hoxpox helmet. Maddie and I both just dropped some bank on the Mondo pin set. Oh, mine finally came. And I got... Yeah. Yeah, it was held up because of the black label pin, right? So... I am such a huge fan of that look, and it's been such a defining change for the X-Men. There was a rather handsome gentleman cosplaying Charles carrying around a Krakoan flower last year at NYCC, and he came to some of our panels, and like I had trouble finishing my panels because I just kept being so distracted by him in this costume. So it, what a great look. Keep sounding off, guys. I actually feel like there's nothing but winners. There have been no bad redesigns. I like Rogue's Captain Britain outfit. Yes, who she was the face mask before the face oh, mask no. was the face mask. No, first off, it's called a oh, face. Oh, I, I love it. This was this was meant to attack Jonah. <laughs> well, I'm gonna attack you, Maddie. <laughs> I hate that. She has the worst one. I know. I know you did. Oh my. I I do genuinely love it. I'll be honest, but I think my favorite one is Apocalypse in Excalibur Volume One. His very flowy robes, blue, golds, whites. Yes, yes, okay, I get it, because it's kind of, like, it's like mutant Scarface meets, like, like Magneto on a houseboat, yes. It's Apocalypse Final Form. This is how he does casual paradise, slash, slash, megalomania magic. Speaking of megalomania magic and a character that we haven't seen at all, Nico, I'm surprised you haven't said Moira. Okay, so... Everyone might be aware that I am really obsessed with Moira and I'm my husband is currently working on my Moira cosplay and I'm going to do I'm going to do Hoxpox to Moira. I think she is the most like it's hard for me to talk about kind of sort of how how perfect a redesign she is. She encapsulates everything about X-Men in the 1960s and flawlessly so. But her color palette is everything 70s that I love about the X-Men. But it's Moira. And what is Moira but the face of the interim X-Men alongside Banshee and Forge in the mid-80s? And yet at the same time, there's this warmth and this vibrance to it. It's just like the best. Dis- there's no losers. They're all winners. No matter who wins, we all win because we get to read this every month. They're all tops. It's no, no. Then a room full of tops is a room full of losers an island full of all tops would be prison basically <laughs> prison honey i mean one man's prison is another man's i'm place. literally grimacing uh, at the idea just... of an island full of tops i'm like oh god get me out uh, that's my favorite weezer song <laughs> get me out of my this island boys. full of <laughs> my, 
That's my favorite Weezer song, Get Me Out of This Island Full of Tops, is my favorite song by Fall Out Boy. <laughs> I Panic at the Disco. I Panic at the Disco, which is my favorite Fiona Apple album title. What a niche bit oh of humor God. that was. And and from there, I imagine we'll be covering Hellions number three today, written by Zeb Wells with artist Steven Segovia, color artist David Uriel, letter artist VC's Ariana Mayer, with design by Tom Muller, and cover art by Steven Segovia and Rain Barreto. Madeline Pryor's plan begins to take shape as she laments her life in love and loss. Psylocke breaks a feral wild child as John Greycrow faces a reckoning with his old pals, the original Marauders. So, okay. Well, okay. I'm going to say a controversial state, right? So everybody knows that, like, I am all about Jean, and I just, like... So I have this whole thing where my personal divas are also my X-Men divas, right? My holy my holy X-Men divas, my top three, are Jean, Emma, and Storm, right? And then also Rogue and Psylocke, right? And so then when I'm casting them with my personal divas, Jean is... Tori Amos and Emma is Mariah Carey and Storm is Janet Jackson, right? And then from there, just in case anybody's curious about it, Robin is Rogue because they both got that fun squeaky voiceness, and BT is Psylocke. You're welcome. <laughs> so I need to clarify why this is significant, right? I love so much about who Jean is. But in a lot of ways, I do kind of think that Jean and Tori are very similar. While I don't feel the need to do it, a lot of people like to compare Tori Amos to other women from her time period, like her contemporaries, like Alanis Morissette, Joan Osborne, Sarah McLaughlin, Fiona Apple. And sure, I hear bits of comparativeness and anybody who went to the five and a half week tour or another five and a half week tour got to see Tori and Alanis on the same stage an hour apart. So <laughs> I am a big proponent of considering the works of these women in terms of one another, but I don't necessarily like comparing them. Now, what is this all getting at? Well, Jean Grey is a very controversial figure in fandom because so many people feel alienated by her success. And I don't mean that, like, they're threatened by how popular she is. Well, no, no, she was the only female X-Man for nine years. So that means there are so many stories that, at best, Polaris, but really no one can intersect with in a more significant way. Her success is actually in many ways a failure because it's led to her being treated as a toy by so many writers. So Jean Grey is often hated in a conceptual form for the role she has played, which in and of itself is the role of a victim. Now, running parallel to that course is the narrative of Madeline Pryor. While... Claremont clearly viewed Jean Grey as a tragic figure. He saw her as no man's victim, whereas Madeline Pryor was the ultimate victim. In fact, Madeline Pryor was the second choice victim. Imagine a group of men decide to cabalishly behind the scenes rape your life to death. And it's because you were their second choice. The real one got away. Madeline Pryor represents an angst, a sadness, and a perversive betrayal of how men treat women. And to that extent, I frequently think she is used erroneously. If you're not doing a really hard, honest-to-God kind of rape and revenge story, if you're not doing uh, I was left for dead, I spit on your grave narrative, you're going to miss the severity of what Madeline Pryor should represent in terms of a read. 
it guts me that to this day, I believe only a handful of women have ever had the chance to write those narratives at Marvel through Madeline Pryor's voice. I think, as a matter of fact, the only one that comes to mind is Wheezy Simonson, who contributed through the pages of X Factor. But Matt Fraction, who I know works closely with his wife, Kelly Sue DeConnick, who is a huge, huge force in the evolution of his narrative. So I'd like to think that a lot of the positive in Sisterhood was her effect, not just on comics, but on the people she personally knows. But, you know, that's just me fanning real people. So I, for the first time in my fandom, truly connected with the horror of Madeline Pryor in a way that shook me. And I walked away from this three times the Madeline Pryor fan and three times the Hellions fan that I was at the start of this. And all I want, because I'm always making jokes about pain slave, pain slave. Guys, Alex here is a pain slave. That's a pain slave. He literally cuts his own mouth open for her. I mean, he is the pain slave. That's a fucking pain slave! So I just put- I love it so much. I love the the whole horror of Alex cutting his mouth open was just so cool her reaction to it like this i can work with and just lunging at him and making out with him is just so hot and it's such a creepy dark mess and i just love it I, i've never really really cared for for the goblin queen beyond just her incredible design right like and, and just artists you know drawing her surrounded by demons like she's she's visually super compelling i'm glad they haven't changed that i'm glad it's still the goblin queen design um but this is the first time that i actually found myself caring about madeline as a person which you know might be dickish on my part i know plenty of ink has been spilled talking about how she was mistreated as a character and not but i always saw her as a clone you know so i had about as much sympathy or or empathy for her as i did strife right um but i don't know i i just i thought the story was so so cool so gripping and so dark huh what fuck wait um Huh. I'm actually taken really aback by that comparison. Jean is to Madeline as Cable is to Strife, but Madeline had Cable. Jean, Jean and Madeline later get young Jean, while Cable and Strife later get X-Man. Huh. Okay. I have a lot to think about now, and I'm going to pass the mic. I think this was very humanizing, not only for Madeline Pryor, but for Psylocke as well. Once again, we see a really excellent use of a white page discussing that time we gave a team to a hand assassin. And I think that we're going to see a big redemption for Psylocke here, not only just in the way that she handled Wildchild, but in her begrudging acceptance of the responsibility of leading this team of misfits. And in a previous episode... We had posited that perhaps Grey Crow and Wild Child were going to develop kind of a saber-tooth Wild Child Age of Apocalypse dynamic, but instead, I think we're going to see that between Quanin and Wild Child. And as long as it doesn't get sexual, I'm pretty okay with it. Uh, it please. And, you know, on that note, Segovia's artistic representation of emotion through facial expression was everything. Maddie's derangement at Havoc being like, hurt me, mommy, was amazing. And then Wild Child's awareness through his pain as Quanin's sub was like when you see a person with dementia have a moment of clarity. It was like a really explosively powerful moment. 
this issue was two dominatrixes trying to out-dominatrix the other. And which is a plot line I didn't think I would actually have to be saying, but I once saw that on Jerry Springer. Yeah, this is the whip it black lace party. This is straight up everything. As Arclight would say, yes, queen. <laughs> I actually thought Quanin showing dominance to Wild Child, that moment was so badass. Uh, even while she's bleeding over her chesticle area that boob window. She, her boob window the the peak the peak at the tatas i thought it was a really interesting way to show that she is on top and that she's still trying to control the situation it makes me think of well how would the situation have gone if they didn't shoot empath in the head and i also think about huh she's a super badass former hand assassin ninja woman and i love that i also think nanny and orphan maker still just being on the ground not being able to do anything is hysterical and nanny going what are you doing i can't see turn me over no no i'm i i i need to take back nothing i will take i take no bad things i've ever said about nanny and orphan maker back ever i i triple down but uh guys i really liked nanny and orphan maker this issue they were fucking amazingly funny so i i need some questions that can possibly be answered by more knowledgeable x fans what exactly is an orphan maker suit slash again are they actually mutants I mean, as far as I am aware, and I'm going to do a little bit more research before next Hellions, and you've seen me research. It gets scary. But as far as I can remember, those two characters exist almost exclusively in the Outback run of uncanny and hopping over then to x factor they show up a little bit in the x-men disassembled era of the interim x-men in the 260s to 280s they pop up in generation x and then they sort of fall off of my radar but they are characters that outside of wells doing this and you know when i think about it wells loves to do horror reinventions of characters that's like one of his signatures outside of that they're just not taken seriously enough to be used legitimately so guys what did you think about my precious gray crow i don't know if you guys remember but i came out kind of swinging that he is the best character that this book will ever have and i say that knowing quanin and sinister are in the book and i was like strangely obsessively defensive of scalp hunter maybe it's just at the time maybe it's just that he's really hot and now that he gets to be gray crow and he wants to be this hero and he wants to be this powerful figure for good guys that's just that's everything a fan could want in a redemption how are you guys feeling about this character that I've inexplicably stand since day one? I'm kind of coming around to him. Um, I, I I wasn't a big fan of him shooting Empath in the head, but this this issue kind of real made me realize just how much of a badass he is. Uh, when things start getting rough. Yeah, it's there's something I hate. I hesitate to use the word Wolverine-ish about that mentality because I don't think that Wolverine has his same sense of cruelty and as say what you want about Wolverine but Wolverine's not explicitly cruel I don't know how I feel about the piss bucket helmet moment still so I think that the person I'd probably liken it a little bit more to is a young Magneto. And I think that's some of what we're seeing in Grey Crow that we care for so much. A man who feels persecuted not just for being a mutant, but also for his cultural heritage, who was forced into a position he did not want. 
and has had to make a lot of terrible decisions as leader in a wartime outfit. It's been a fascinating progression for sure. And it's also been odd trying to identify with Empath. I don't get it. I just don't get it. I don't like the character. I am not attracted to the character. I don't identify with the character. And I think I'm supposed to because he's like he's the hot-headed Latino boy. And like, you know, I have really specific memories of building my Lego castle. And then I realized I'd put the wrong color piece in one of the base sections and picking it up and smashing it because it was all wrong. And like, you know, I, I get it. We're, I'm that same guy. But I shed those parts of me that I felt were childish and so I can't find myself wanting to invest in someone who wishes to invest further in that childishness and now Jojo Maddie I know you guys wow that Jojo and Maddie sounds like two cartoon characters that would live in a giant world of couches or something but so I know you guys I don't know if it's identify with him because of you know our shared Latin heritage and Arturo I'd love to know what you think yeah yeah I don't like him at all <laughs> well, you see, I like him like the same way I like Quentin Choir. I never want them to succeed, and I always want them to be killed in every issue. Okay, okay. It's pretty amazing. You're not supposed to like Empath. You're not really supposed... He literally is a character that has no redeeming qualities. And sure, you could maybe say that his power set kind of made him the way he is, because he never really had to learn what it meant, what it means to form a genuine connection Slash what it means to have people disappointed or angry with you because you can just change their emotions on a whim. But that being said, there's nothing redeemable, nothing you're supposed to like about Empath. You're not supposed to identify with them. And if you do, please go seek help because yeah. I feel like you might need it. I totally agree. And I think part of the Hellions lineup, it, it is going to be about redemption for some of the characters. I think Greycrow might come out on the right side of that. But I think some characters are going to prove to be irredeemable. And that's kind of by design, right? Because like I think we, we mentioned it in the last episode, ultimately, eventually, Sinister betrays everybody. And he's not going to do that by himself, right? He's going to have like some kind of loyalists. And, you know, we might be seeing, you know, the, the beginning of... Uh, you know, a new version of pre-late summers with, with Havoc, right? Like he, he might end up on the wrong side of, of, of the redemption. And I think that's cool. I think, think this book is not obvious. You don't really know what you're going to get. And it just continues to, to surprise us. And, uh, and getting to know these characters, I think is going to be really cool. You know, and I think to mimic something that you're saying, Arturo, is the concept of redemption. To harken back to Hellions number one, I felt an immediate sense of redemption with John Greycrow to watch his interaction defending himself with the Morlocks and then to watch him fall on that sword with the Quiet Council and silently take his punishment. Whereas Empath were shown an immediately ruthless and sociopathic betrayal, portrayal of Empath, which is synonymous with the character. And then we get the longest white page in the book describing the nature versus nurture of his x-gene developing into the mental illness that is his antisocial behavior i think it primes him to be a little less poised for a successful redemption and i think that what was executed so quickly and succinctly with john Greycrow lacked for me with empath and then to see him murdered later in the issue well now i don't know frankly if he's coming back and if he does come back what role will he take and you know, talking about villains that 
you never thought you'd get to see come back. And just, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things I look forward to when I hear someone's going to be drawing something. When I heard Ron Garney was going to be drawing Daredevil, my heart exploded for the cityscapes. When I hear that Stephanie Hans is going to be doing covers, I know they're going to dazzle me. When I heard that David Baldione was going to be working on Mojo, I knew this was going to be a take on the character I could never have imagined. There were a lot of key moments in this issue that my mutation was being a huge slut for. But really, I need like an old school movie style poster of that Mojo page in all of its glory because that was... That was something else from an aesthetic perspective. I just want to appreciate for a moment the amount and size of Mojo's teeth. I thought was a very fun creative choice. Uh, yeah, just teeth on teeth. And with that, guys, if we're talking about Mojo, we must be talking about X-Factor. So let's get into it right. Yet again, X-Factor sets itself apart as probably the best book that has ever been written, ever in the history of ever. What better to be excited about than X-Factor number two, written by Leah Williams with artist David Baldione, color artist Israel Silva with letterer VCs Joe Caramagna, designed by Tom Muller, and cover artist Ivan Schock. Back from her brief stint in death, Aurora arrives at the Boneyard to anonymous bloody pack. Seeking information on contents of Ox, X-Factor traveled to Mojoverse seeking sponsorship entrance as well as answers to ever-growing list questions. And my god, the new outfits. Yet again, X-Factor sets itself apart as the best book that has ever been written in the history of ever. And has not has ceased to not make not only make me laugh uncontrollably, but also make me enjoy all of the characters except for North Star. Well, of course, now we <laughs> have to do the Bobier Twins litmus test. So we have come to discover that no one really likes North Star. You kind of love him in spite of himself like absinthe or something so arturo it is so exciting to have a new brother to share the magic of x factor with the episode with nathan ran so long it was the only thing that episode so i have to know before you say any other wonderful things about what was my pick of the week x factor where do you stand i <sighs> I don't have many thoughts on Aurora. I, I'm, I'm sad to say I'm a Gemini, so I love the concept of twins. I love that as a as a literary you know trope. I always dig it when there's a twin set of something. So I like that about what she brings to the table. But other than that, uh, all I I know about her is just like you know she has a fractured psyche, and Jean Paul imprinted really heavily on me when I was a kid, and. Alpha Flight, I can't even remember the number, but the one where he comes out. I had the second print of that, and I got With it because I was, huh? Uh, yes, correct. With the red the, cover, because the, the, no, the first I had think the, blue the second cover? print had the yellow cover. I might be yes. misremembering that. No, there might just be that many goddamn prints. It's the issue where the gay Canadian magic fairy who got over the fairy AIDS came out after adopting a baby. So, like, it. Listen. <laughs> 
representation back then was left a lot to be desired. The story is a mess. It doesn't hold up well. But and I don't, you know, I don't want to date myself. But it suffice to say, I was uh, young enough that I was reading X Men. I was I was into the mutants, and my ears perked up when I heard about this issue in the comic shop. And and I scurried over and I picked it up. And I, you know, I, I hadn't figured things out at that point in my life, but uh, but I knew it was significant. And I guess I've always had a soft spot in my heart for him uh, since then. And it's great to see him now actually, I don't know, just not just being angry, yet Leah's still being true to that. Like, it's still the same character that we've seen throughout, but now we're just seeing, like, more dimension to him. And you know, I do feel that way, the way you feel about it's a powerful piece that interacted with your psyche, knowing it's a bit problematic. I have shown my husband a lot of early gay culture for me that I interacted with, like Lacage or, which is, you know, to this day, it's my number three musical of all time. Lacage is just such a significant part of my life, but I recognize it's problematic in many ways. Kevo and I are nearly done with a complete watch of Melrose Place. And you know what? Other than a handful of places, Matt is one of the most consistently progressive gay characters on television. And it's okay to look back and be impressed or not impressed with something by understanding its context, but still representing something significant to you personally. So there's, you know, I'm a huge apologist for things like this helped so many people come out. So at the time it was important. It's not its fault. It couldn't go further then. So I actually love that Jean-Marie comes in right at the beginning and she's like, hey guys, I'm here. I'm going to hang out at the apartment. Hey. Like, I actually really love that. There's something really like Buffy back from the dead in season six kind of about it. She's just sort of like, hey guys, this is like, I'm a little washed out right now. I had some like real heavy drinking last night and I just came out of an egg. And like, she really just seems bedraggled by sadness and like that's one of my favorite issues for her ever i i say this looking right at my north star and aurora figures that i only bought for aurora i i want to see a white page of the uh so you've been resurrected that that was on top of the box i really wanted to see that i got uh big beetlejuice vibes from that the the handy guidebook for the recently deceased or departed and uh, I want to see that. I, I wish that that was one thing that I, I wanted more from this issue was to, to that white page to pop up somewhere and see, you know, the contents of uh, So You've Been Resurrected. Well, considering X-Factor has to go on a temporary hiatus to allow for the schedule of Ten of Swords to play out the way they wanted it to, I can only hope that X-Factor will be given some amount of budget by editorial because, hey, it's not, you know, the, the creators can't work for free. Let's be totally reasonable here and i hope that they're able to get some amount of material out in that time that they're not being published with marvel's help and blessing so that people have access to a little bit more of the magic that is x factor kyle i know you've been blown away by this book oh yes it's it's honestly my i think it's my second favorite after uh marauders at this point it's every everything just feels so cohesive about this team and it's only been two books and they just feel like a great route to work together. I even love them not working together. And I'll say there there are two issues. It's two issues, but I'll say they're like really dense issues. Leah has a way of of layering and and just adding a lot of story and Baldion's art is just incredible. Um 
I don't know. For me, both issues have almost felt like giant sized. Like, and and I don't think it's because they have more pages. I I just think there's so much story crammed into it, and it's in, in the best way. There's a noir sense of complete narrative. It's a really noir sense of complete narrative. I completely agree with you. Every issue is a self-contained experience. And I don't know if everybody else is tracking this, but every character has progression each issue in a characterization way. And I have to assume that might even be why we didn't have Aurora in the first issue. She couldn't grow. But every character gets to grow from beginning to end at some point. Rather than putting a lot of emphasis on a complex plot they're putting a lot of emphasis on the character interaction with each plot and i think that's what's resultant here we're seeing how each character is responding to a stimulus right we're seeing how each character is handling this x factor introduced to their core being Baldeon's art is so essential to what Williams is doing because he's transforming the landscape of the panel by deforming size, right? And Maddie, I think this is something you might be able to speak to a little bit better than I can, but by making Dokken so severe, contrary greatly to most interpretations of Dokken where he's very lean and... When you take a look at how Prodigy, who everybody, you can go back to the first episode of the show, Prodigy has always been someone that this entire cast has talked about warmly. Seeing his transformation into this mutant couture, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman has been spectacular because it's been rewarding to see a character that I identified with despite him being straight you know I was like no I really love this character who then became a bisexual character it's just been such a rewarding process these are characters that you need to treat with psychological not kid gloves but sensitivity gloves and they're definitely not holding back they're aggressively using somewhat triggering language but it's because these characters speak with a reality they speak with an honesty that's what's making this book bang and fuck so hard for me it's an exquisite bit of profiling for 32 pages each week you know and i i keep my eyes just so drawn to the new angularity of all of these costumes and there is david baldeon's art has such a severity particularly in the faces the the eyes the slope of the nose the intensity of the brow I think there is so much to be said for examining this art, and I think that's something we'll be looking very closely at going forward. But I I look at the stream chat page, the Headshot TV, and it is such a dynamic use of a six-panel six spread on a page here, everyone individually getting a second chance to identify themselves through very little dialogue and only the cultural perception. And I think that that was such a strong and smart use. And then not only three pages later, page 17 on digital, we have a huge splash of Mojo with an upshot of the Mojo verse around it. And it really is warping the perception of space and size. Like Nico had said, it really is something beautiful to look at. Every page provides something different, whether it's conventional page breakdowns or it's over-the-top dynamicism in the art. Yeah, that that upshot of Mojo, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's grotesque. And I think that really matches the character. It's a really interesting take on presenting him. Well, even presenting him in the story seems like 
I mean, we ended the first issue, right? The premiere issue is so good. Now we have a, we have an HQ, we have the Boneyard, and they had a flood of, you know, cases to investigate. So, I mean, I think everybody was kind of expecting book two to be, you know, their first case or, the, or their second case, I guess, actually, after Aurora. And the fact that we make a sharp left and end up in the Mojoverse is so bonkers and fun. And I just... I, you know, I, I, I've been a little maybe critical of Excalibur for some of their, uh, you know, adventure of the week kind of D and D campaign, you know, vibe. Um, but I didn't have any of those issues here, you know, oh, there's a, a Krakoan gate that goes right to the Mojo verse. Sure. I accept that at face value. Awesome. Let's go. And it, it was just so fun. And I, I didn't get caught up in, you know, wondering the why of any of it. I just, I just am enjoying what a fun, unexpected ride this is. And I can't wait to see Spiral, who I think is, you know, imminent uh, and hopefully long shot somewhere, maybe. I don't know. I just I'm really excited by this book. And I feel like you're touching on a lot of what makes me excited for the same reasons. And, you know, we have really parallel X experiences, you know, even though there's some years between the age we began at, we started reading at roughly the same era. So we have a lot of the same responses. But there's something about this idea that the characters here are being healed. And the pivot to the Mojoverse, we just immediately were like, oh, okay, and maybe we'll see Spiral in Longshot. But the pivot to the Mojoverse once again represents that X factor that this book is all about. And I almost wonder if you could call this book X factor, because, you know, every book needs, every iteration of X factor gets a term to help keep it clear. There's the original X factor, which was the O5. There's all new X factor or Peter David X factor, which was the Havoc and Lorna team. Then there's x-factor investigations for the madrox investigations team and i think you could call this x-factor character rehab because i feel like this team should be where you put characters that need some amount of critical rehabilitation to reintroduce them to the x-men with a modernized cleaned up identity that's what i'm getting here absolutely and that's and that's what x-factor is right that's exactly it like when Mojo says, uh, I do wish you were the more famous X-Men, but I shall endure. Like, that is a defining thing of, of X-Factor ever since, you know, the Havoc and Polaris Strong Guy uh, reboot, right? It, it, they were never as famous as the X-Men. They're always kind of the, you know, I don't want to say B-list because it certainly isn't a B-list. But yeah, it's just, it's not the, the it's not the X-Men. And, uh, and, and I love that this book is taking that note and doing their own twist on it uh while still serving investigative you know detective noir in a new way and it's gay i have to commend everybody all of the creative team for the splash page of the entry into the mojo verse it was one of the funniest things i have ever read it was just just i can't stop thinking about on prodigy's page where someone typed gay and someone said no he's bi it, like it's just it, it and, and like oh my god what was that? like ooh, like uwu eye boy like cutie eye boy something along those lines just it was 
I, I can't. Uwu, it was Uwu Dapper Hipster Boy, the prodigy. Yes, Uwu Dapster Hipster Boy. And it's just like, you, you, that that's some serious, good, relatable content that I'm looking for, especially with uh, whatever mojo the mojo world is. It was pretty amazing. And this Dawkin going, I, I don't care if I get in, I'll just go hang out with your hot sister then, who's all alone in our apartment. Am I fucking dissociating? <laughs> 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 He was, and hey, it gave him it gave him another opportunity to taunt Northstar with hanging out with Aurora. The shout out to Triple X Xavier Files for saying you pansies should have let him whip it out when uh, when Dakin was threatening everyone with a good time to show his full tattoo. I just love that. It was a cheap laugh, but goddamn it, it worked. It really speaking for the masses i and you know what i'm not even yes. trying to give a book a pass because i want to i feel like i wasn't taken away that the mystery of trying to solve who is this dead mutant wasn't solved in one issue i think it's still i'm still pretty invested in this narrative of everything that's going on and i will say i was expecting mojo to put up a bigger fight but like just two members of x factor basically destroying everything was just kind of like okay i see it well I kind of have a question now. Who do you want to see rehabbed in X Factor? They've taken on North Star, and I kind of like him now. I even think they made Mojo seem relevant in an era where cable TV, the thing he is meant to mock, no longer matters, right? So I want to know, who would you guys want to see filtered through the pages of X Factor for a little rehab and reset? I know I would want to see it be Dazzler, not because she needs a rehab or a reset, but because the cultural vernacular on her needs a rehab. People need a chance to understand this new character, and I feel like people are taking X-Factor serious. How about you guys? I'm going to go in left field, and I'm feeling my uh, my spiral vibes right now, so I'm going to say Ricochet Rita. Hell Yeah! And I think just getting some clarity, some clarity on her as a character and kind of tying up the loose ends and starting fresh, but keeping six arms. Uh, I Yeah, I just I would love to see her kind of come through. A little Art Adams by way of Flaviano. Oh, 100 percent. I'm going to reverse time about 30 minutes and I want. Madeline Pryor to be rehabbed. Ooh. Had so much pain in her life. I want her... I've, I've said it before. I want to see her get some kind of happy ending. You want to see Madeline former? <laughs> <laughs> I think personally I'd like to see my mutant doppelganger be redeemed through the pages of X-Factor, I would say Julian Keller would be an excellent addition. But can I, can he not get his hands back? Can he not Ooh. be reverse disabled so that he can be a positive representation of able-bodied people with disabilities? I would absolutely love to see that. I think there's always more room for representation of differently abled individuals in comics. What is it you want to see redeemed in Julian? Because, like, I'm with you. I love him. He reminds me a lot of, I mean, yeah, he is he is a likable empath. I want a redemption for Joseph. Mm. We love to see it. The young hot clone of Magneto. 
I want to see him resurrected. Listen, if we got, if we have Madeline Pryor running around, why not have a younger, hotter version of Magneto running around? He's a person too. I love it. I want it. So I have two answers. I have a non-serious and a serious answer. My non-serious, Ernst, bring her back. Where is she? Yeah, where is she? What is she doing right now? Looking old. Where's Martha? Where is Martha? I love Martha. Justice for Martha. How dare they not give me more Martha? No, seriously, she should be part of, like, the Krakoan Security Command Central, honestly. How do you introduce one of the single greatest characters that's just a floating brain and then never use her? How dare you? My serious answer is Chamber. Not because I think he really needs a redemption or a redone, but I don't think he's really getting his fair shake over in New Mutants. I feel bad for Mondo and him because they don't really feel like they're still fitting in. It's been, what, 11 issues? And it doesn't really seem like they're interacting well with any of them. So I feel like, you know, put him in X-Factor. I feel like he could be a lot of fun there. So... Arturo, I want to thank you for coming out and playing with us, which has just been the most exciting thing, and for inspiring this very Magneto-centric episode. And as a matter of fact, if you guys like Magneto and you like free shit, give this episode a retweet, and you're automatically entered to win a 4-inch import Beast Kingdom Magneto statue, right? Super adorable. We'll have an image up on the site with it. It's super cute, right? And Arturo, we're so grateful that you came out and played with us. What was your favorite part about being on the show? Uh, the friends I made along the way. You guys are great. Shut the fuck up. You're so cute. And we've had Aww. such a great time having you. And until, um, and until we have you again, baby, where can everybody find you online? You can find me trying to spot Dakin's whole tattoo at Mr. Toybox on Instagram and Twitter. And I'll quote Bad Bunny and say, Gracias por el apoyo, baby. Gracias por lo like. From Hellions of the Who's the Better Dominatrix, in which I hope we find out in the next issue, really brought about cementing Alex as a pain slave who really doesn't, who now knows exactly what he wants, and that's to just be, you know, at the heel and beck and whim of his beautiful, seductive woman, Madeline. And Great Crow and the other members of Hellions trying to figure out how exactly they could get out of the situation and can they even help the former Marauders? Over to X Factor, which brought a comical, lighthearted look at sponsorship and streaming and viewership, as well as making us fall in love with these characters more and more. Mm, I say that for the exception of maybe North Star, but that's just because I like ragging on him. Kyle, what are we covering next time? Next time, we are covering cable number four. New Mutants number 12, Wolverine number 5, and the final issue of Empire, Empire number 6. Until then, though, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. Maddie, where can everybody find you? You can find my full Headshot TV interview on Instagram at, at the basically covetous man. Jonah, where can everybody find you? I would just like to note, I would also love to see Dawkins' whole tattoo. But you can find me battling my way in sponsorships to become the number one mutant of the Mojoverse on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? Well, until I return back to this show next time, which will be featuring returning guest Josh again, you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram talking to these folks, for the most part, at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And don't forget to check out the other amazing shows here on CageClub.net. 
M-E, including the other feeds of this show, X's for Podcast, HTML, as well as Too Fast Too Forever, which will be appearing on all summer. That's me and Kevo over on Joey and Joe 2's show. If you like what you hear here, you'll probably like my other appearances on this network, so don't forget to check out a special appearance on Hanks for the Memories, where I talk about Toy Story 4 and mostly comic shit, and Joey just kind of puts up with it. Mike always finds it funny because Mike's adorable, right? And guys, until we come back next time, it should go without saying, but please remember, black lives matter, trans dreams matter, and you need to vote like your weakest friend's life depends on it because in this coming election, it really might. Make sure your news sources are unbiased, and if you're going to lean toward any bias, please make sure it keeps someone alive. All right, but until we return next time, guys, keep it Krakowin. We'll see ya. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much. It was a really, really fun experience. Really enjoyed it. You guys are great. It felt like I was both watching an episode in real time and talking to it. So it was better than me just shouting in my car by myself at shit you guys recorded three months ago. This was uh, this was a lot more gratifying. I actively shouted at you guys. It's great. And uh, and and actually engaging with the disembodied voices of my car is, is kind of fun. 